Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Monday, August 12th. I'm Justin Cocciola alongside Tim Hurth. We've got Kevin Wall of the SB Nation blog, Noon's Magician. Uh, we are talking Syracuse football today. Great episode. Gives you a uh, an inside look at everything to expect from Syracuse. Um, I think they are going to be an ACC threat. Uh, but we'll get into that in a second. First off, Tim, what's going on? You know, I guess it's kind of a calm Sunday around my house right now. Uh, the wife and the baby are out at the playground somewhere. I'm here watching uh, two hound dogs wrestle each other on my living room floor while I record this. Um, but, you know, that's what you want. There's not a lot to do. We'll be running to the store a little later, a nice Publix run, um, you know. <laughs> so we'll be able to, to go on the hunt for more brands of hard seltzer, and hopefully I can find that natural light uh, hard seltzer that I recently found out about. Yeah, no, I've seen that in stores now for a few weeks. It's It's been in Chicago. Uh, but Perfect. Yeah, I've not really thought about adding it to my cart. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. So you'll uh, you'll have to kind of keep me posted on on what you find out there. I definitely will, man. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to it. The stats on it look pretty good. I like the alcohol content. I like the calorie content. Um, you know, so I'll let you know as soon as I find out. The only thing I don't like is it seems to be sold in 24-count cases um, with one flavor. And that's just a lot to go with as far as one flavor goes in a, in a hard seltzer. That's a uh, big commitment. That, to me, tells me they've got some kind of uh, scaling issue. And uh, they're, they're, <laughs> they're trying to offload it or something. I, I don't know what's going on there. But, you know, the uh, the seltzer market is getting a little bit out of control. I uh, I recently tried the new Bubbly. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like a, yeah, I think it's a Coke it's good. product. Yeah. Uh, but I bought it just for the intent of trying to drink less soda around the house, but to not drink just straight up water. Um, and, you know, the first two were kind of rough, but like by the 12th one, by the time I had finished a 12 pack, I was like, you know, I can I can drink this, you know, mix it in sure. every now and then. It's better sure. than drinking like, you know, multiple Diet Cokes a day. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'm I'm totally sold on the uh, seltzer with or the spiked seltzer market, but, you know, ask me in 15, 20 years, maybe, maybe I'll come around. <laughs> well, so it's funny you say that. There is a definite wall, like when you're working on the non-alcoholic hard seltzers, where the first two taste, especially if you're not used to it, it, it tastes horrible. I mean, to, to put it lightly, it's it's basically a watered-down flavor in an ultra-carbonated beverage, and you don't get it. Yeah. Then about, you know, three, maybe four cans in, it starts to make a little sense. Um, and nowadays, you know, I keep seltzer in my fridge at all times, and I don't always drink it. But sometimes you need that carbonation to cut through whatever you got going on, and it's uh, you know it's fantastic. Every time they release a new flavor, I grab it just to try it. Um, it's pretty cool. So funny story. Uh, my last company, I my first trip abroad ever. You know, we we had a work trip to to Sweden, and I get into the hotel room. And they're like, you know, you can drink the water. So I'm like very conscious. I'm like, okay. I'm, I was like dying of thirst. You know, it had been a long flight, long day. Finally get to the hotel, couldn't find a bottle of water. Turn on the faucet and there's like two different water spouts. So one's blue, which I yeah. assume was for water. And the other one was just like a regular one. So I, I hit the blue one, drink it, spit it out all over the room. <laughs> Turns out it can be, you can have seltzer water in a tap in Sweden or sparkling water or whatever, whatever it is they call it. And I was so disgusted 
I, I yeah. don't think yeah. <laughs> I, until recently when I tried the White Claw, I think that was like my first spiked water or seltzer water experience since that moment. Yeah. And it just kind of, yeah. it just, I was so disgusted because like, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever just had something in your mind and this could be anything like, oh, you know, I think I'd like a nice glass of orange juice and you, you know, you pour a glass and you're not paying attention and it turns out to be eggnog. Like that's kind yeah. of, oh yeah, no, no. it's a shock. Yeah, it's it a is. shock. So if, if I can remember as a kid, I'm kind of throwing it back to the kid days here. Um, every, every now and then we'd have Sprite in the house. Um, and so Sprite, you'd pour it. There's a couple occasions. I don't know how it got missed, you know, how it happened as a kid, but my cup would get mixed up with another cup and I would go in thinking it was Sprite and I'd get hit with water. And I almost vomited because I was so keen on that spiced yeah. lemon lime flavor. And I got still like tap Rocky Mountain, North Carolina flavored tap water. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, it's a shock to the system. No, no, it is. And yeah, it just, it kind of like harmed me mentally. And like, it's happened to me in airports before, like especially in, in foreign airports where reading the labels of bottled water gets extremely difficult because sure. sparkling water is very popular in Europe. And you just kind of have to guess. You try to shake the bottle a little bit, see if the, you know, see if the bubbles appear. But um, (laughs) yeah, you know, I I think that's probably my aversion to seltzers right now. I think that's where it stems from. It it may. And you know, you just keep working on them. The more you drink, the more you like them. Um, It's a strange thing. It's, you know, I don't have a love affair with seltzer, but I feel so much better about myself when I'm drinking that instead of like a Diet Coke. Or some other carbonated vegetable, vegetable, some other carbonated <laughs> drink. Uh, that's the next. That's uh, the next fat. Carbonated that's vegetables. A, carbonated vegetables are next on our list, man. Um, you better trademark that, that before it gets stolen. We need to, but yeah, I mean, as far as drinking that compared to you know diet cokes and things with a bunch of chemicals and stuff in it, um, it makes you feel like a better human being. So I think that's maybe worth it in the long run. Uh, so, like I said in the beginning, we are talking to Kevin Wall today uh, from the SB Nation blogs, or Noon's Magician, so focused on Syracuse football. Um, we kind of dive into everything Syracuse, uh, talk about you know the attrition from last year to this year, what to expect on offense, uh, an elite-level defense except for maybe that middle, that middle linebacker portion, so we talk about that a little bit. And then uh, we also kind of address the Virginia Tech-Syracuse rivalry back in the uh, 90s and early 2000s before we went on about a, uh, I don't know, probably 13-year hiatus before the 2016 matchup. So that was fun to relive those kinds of moments. We are saving all ACC football news for you until next week. Uh, We are going to have our ACC preview show, so... Uh, there's a lot of news around uh, certain camps. You know, there's some injuries happening. There's some guys coming back. Uh, so in order to not date this so much, uh, we are going to press pause on that until next week. And uh, later this week, we'll also have a show dropping, um, you know, talking to Southern Pigskin. And we talk a little bit of SEC football, ACC football as well. So we've got your preview shows coming up. Uh, we are getting close to football season, which is always a good time. I uh, I personally cannot wait, and I know Tim, you're in the same boat. Oh man, I can't wait. I'm 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 so hyped right now, and and we are so insanely close at this point. Honestly, the wait until college football season is a breeze, but the fact that we get that Florida Miami uh, a little earlier than usual is going to be nice as well. So I'm you know I you know me, I'm just sitting here counting down the days. 
Absolutely. So again, if this is your first time uh, joining the show, we are Chowder and Grits, a podcast focused on ACC and Tokies football. Uh, you can catch us on uh, any kind of mainstream podcast, uh, podcast network, Apple Podcasts, probably the best way. So go ahead and click subscribe. But first, here's Kevin Wall with Noon's Magician. We welcome on Kevin Wall from the SB Nation blog, Noon's Magic, covering all things Syracuse Orange Sports. Kevin, welcome to the show. All right, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So before we get started, um, Noon's mag- Magic. Obviously, yep. I assume the name comes from Troy Noon's. That's but cr- correct, yeah. He was, you know, probably not the greatest quarterback in Syracuse history. So what? where does the name come from? So the site's founder, Sean Keeley, uh, pulled a reference from a, a game of Syracuse versus Auburn. Uh, one of Troy Noons' better games as a starter. Um, and the announcer said, after a touchdown pass, Troy, Mo- Troy Noons is an absolute magician. Okay. And so when Sean started the block, he thought it would be funny. Um, <laughs> as time went on, he probably regretted picking something that was so long, and it's sort of been uh, shortened to just Noons Magician. Um, but that's, that's where it started. So we go by uh, Noons Magician, Troy Noons is an absolute magician, T-N-I-A-A-M, uh, whatever your choice is, uh, works. But it's a, a little throwback to, to someone that Virginia Tech fans might not fondly remember, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's. we'll talk about him a little bit later. But right. uh, yeah, for a guy who wasn't a Syracuse great, I mean, he did start for basically four years, was kind of in and out of the starting rotation there for a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, had some big wins over the Hokies, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Syracuse sure. seemed to have the Hokies number in the in the uh, '90s and early 2000s. But um, so let's let's talk about Syracuse this year. So sure. just to recap, last year, you know, first winning season in six years, uh, their best season since the uh, Troy Noons days, 17 okay. years ago, uh, was the last time they won 10 10 games. Uh, finished 15th in the AP poll. poll. Uh, they really took a big step forward under Dino Babers, and he had gone four of eight in his uh, first two seasons. Um, and previously at Bowling Green in Eastern Illinois, it took him about two seasons to right the ship. But before we get into that, Babers mm-hmm. is kind of a uh, he's an interesting persona because right. he's, he's very charismatic. Some would say maybe a master motivator. Uh, but, you know, outside of on-the-field success, can you just talk about what Babers has meant for the Syracuse program as a whole? So I think what he sort of epitomized is uh, the modern coach. And so he's a little bit older than someone like Lincoln Riley or Manny Diaz, but he really has a good grasp of promotion and marketing of the team. And he seems to have really upgraded what the football program does in terms of videos. Um, tonight was the third episode of a YouTube series they're doing called La Familia, which is sort of an inside look at some of the players and the goings on within the program. So I think he really understands the, the importance of marketing, um, being out in the local community, getting the fan support, and also you know appealing to players and what they want. Um, he was a really interesting interview. Um, talks a lot about movies, makes a lot of cultural references. And from what players understand, he, you know, what you see is what you get with him in terms of his sort of commitment to uh, what he believes is the development of young men as well as football players. Yeah, I mean, we, that's that's kind of what you see 
uh, just from being an outsider of the program. But, you know, Syracuse over the years, it's it's been a program that's had up and down success. Mm-hmm. So under Paul Pascaloni in the in the 90s and early 2000s, they won a lot of games. Right. And, uh, you know, they had some big time players. You had the Dwight Freenies, the Donovan McNabb's of the Worlds, the David Tyrees. But obviously the Pascaloni era ended uh, rather abruptly going 16 and 20 his last three seasons. And then came in uh, Greg Robinson, oh, yeah. who uh, who almost resurfaced uh, in the ACC. Of course, we're talking about the Big East days here, but right. you know Robinson was uh, rumored to be named defensive coordinator at North Carolina under Mac Brown until oh, the alumni base <laughs> threw a uh, threw a fit, basically, right. oh, yeah. for lack of oh, yeah. a better term. They but, were going to riot. I mean, reasonably so. So mm-hmm. Robinson was a guy never been a head coach and never will be again. Right. To to put it bluntly, but he pretty much set the program back a decade. Um, And, you know, 2005, 2006, I think they had four wins combined, but those ended up being vacated. Right. Uh, But maybe just kind of talk about the Pascaloni era and maybe why it took so long to get back to maybe that mid 90s success. Uh, just because that was pretty much the last time there was that 10 win season in the early part of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. That was the last time Syracuse was really kind of a threat. Right. So the past Colonia era, some of that really the facilities started to <clears throat> catch up to Syracuse in terms of lack of. So the dome's been obviously a nice place to play, but the turf was getting older. Uh, there wasn't an indoor practice facility. There wasn't a lot of money spent in terms of budgeting. And so I think the program became a little stale. Um, as the first conference sort of realignment came and Syracuse thought they were going to be in the ACC, and then that didn't happen, um, I think financially staying in the Big East at that time was a, was a problem and, and hurt. And so there was a lot of just kind of program sort of stagnated and, you know, Pascaloni's overall record wasn't good, but he still had some talent and he still won some games. And so the team was just good enough, I think, to keep him around. And then when Daryl Gross came in from USC, actually Pascaloni's last game was a bowl game and uh, Syracuse got absolutely demolished by Georgia tech. And that ended up being where Gross pulled the plug on him. And so then when Robinson came in, you know, was coming from Texas where he had success with Mac Brown as that defensive right. coordinator. He had the Super Bowl rings, really nice guy, um, but no East Coast real connections. You know, his his thing was he had spent a little bit of time with the Jets, but as far as recruiting, he didn't have the inroads. And, and Syracuse is kind of a hard place to recruit to as well, right? Uh, yeah, I think at that time, especially, you know, because it, it was this switch from this uh, Syracuse under Pasqualoni and George DeLeon were playing that sort of freeze option football. Mm-hmm. And so you weren't recruiting, even though McNabb was successful, they got McNabb sort of, you know, kind of lucked out that Illinois wasn't interested in him. And so, you know, they kind of tweaked the offense around him a little bit, but, you know, they were having trouble recruiting that sort of talent that people, you know, that was really important. And, and the Northeast was sort of, taking a step back in that recruiting base of um, New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, Syracuse lost some inroads, especially in New Jersey. Um, you know, as the Syracuse program was falling off, that's when, you know, Greg Robinson and Greg Ciano were kind of overlapping and, and the Rutgers program was emerging and right. keeping a lot of that New Jersey talent and, you know, at home instead of coming up, uh, coming up North uh, to Syracuse to play. So you mentioned facilities has, yeah. 
I mean, obviously the Carrier Dome isn't exactly a state-of-the-art facility, but right. outside of the Carrier Dome, what have they done to address that, if they have? So I think well, maybe five years ago, they completed an indoor practice facility, uh, the Ensley Athletic Center. And so now the team has an indoor uh, facility to train uh, year-round. Which, which is, is important in Syracuse. Yeah, sure. That's right. a big deal. You know, because the Carrier Dome is... Obviously, after uh, football season ends, it becomes full time for basketball. Mm -hmm. And so if football goes in there, you, you only have a half field to work on. Um, and the cost of converting it constantly back and forth from football to basketball. And we not only have men's basketball, but women's basketball playing in the dome. And then when spring comes, men's and women's lacrosse is in there. So football, you know, wasn't getting that full like 24-7 access that now they have. Now the indoor facility is a few steps outside of the football complex. And, you know, it's just kind of the trend nationally. I mean, everybody's got an indoor facility for, for players to be working out full, almost full time. Yeah. So, you know, really just kind of listening to Babers this offseason, it's felt like, you know, there's been a major culture uh, problem before he got there. You know, I don't know if it was a Scott Schaefer issue or if it was just something that's kind of been there since Greg Robinson. But, you know, he's a guy who, you know, he's he's self-proclaimed proclaimed, likes to keep it loose, but then he'll go military on you very quick. Right. Um, but, you know, do you feel... It's a little bit odd. There was one quote that stood out to me earlier this this, uh, this offseason to where Babers basically said he had to sell the administration on treating the football program like a winner. You know, yeah. why why is that? And, you know, do you think that's a that's an issue? I think some of it was, you know, just uh, financial, you know, being a, a private school and trying to run a self-supporting athletics department. And when you're not winning football games and not going to bowl games and not selling tickets, all of a sudden football is not generating the revenue that it, it needs to kind of invest back in your programs. And here basketball had been king, you know, for a long time, um, you know, with Jim Beheim here and the, you know, averaging over 20,000 fans and the revenue that they generate, I think they had carried more, a lot more weight in terms of facilities. Obviously, we had the Carmelo Anthony Center, which was built. Um, so basketball got a, a state-of-the-art practice facility before football had, you know, a full field to work out indoors. And so, you know, and I think we had, a, after Daryl Gross left, Mark Coyle was here short-term before he went back to Minnesota. And then now John Wildhack, who came in, who's an alum, who came from ESPN, you know, and I think they see when they hired Babers or when Wildhack came in, Babers was in place. Um, they really had to understand some things in terms of football and, and in terms of not just facilities, but I think scheduling wise, like even this year, Babers has made some comments about the fact that Syracuse opens the season at Liberty. And so it's kind of interesting for a team coming off a 10-win season to be playing a game at Liberty and then the following week playing at Maryland. So opening with two right. road games is something that most top 25 teams aren't doing, you know. And so especially not, um, you know, I think it might make more sense if it was one of those big uh, neutral site kickoff games where you're, where you're cashing right. a large check for your department. But, uh, you know, to, to take some money to go play at Liberty is a, is a risk for the program. And I think, uh, you know, I think Babers has alluded to trying to, to, to get that shift in thinking and really maximizing what needs to be done to be successful and continue the success. Yeah, and Liberty is really a program that, you know, they've invested quite a, quite a lot just into that entire university. But from a football standpoint, it's still Liberty. Right. They've still right. got that kind of FCS sheen on them, even yeah. though they're considered FBS. But um, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like to me, 
it's it's similar to what Virginia Tech has with Old Dominion, which hey, by the way, yeah. they went to Old Dominion lost last year. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for that, Justin. <laughs> there's definitely there's always that risk, I think, when you're going to some of these smaller guys' houses. Right. Um, because they, they seem to get up for those games more so than they would maybe elsewhere. Right. Now, some of the scheduling, there is a, a major dome renovation project that's underway now. And so some oh, of the, some the, of the carrier scheduling... Is going to have AC? It will eventually. <laughs> oh, my There you go. The, the it's finally it'll come full circle. A, the first thing it'll have is a, a new roof, which is not going to be air-supported. Um, and so with the new video board and sound, because they'll be able to do more things. And so we've actually got some work going on right now. So they are trying to schedule so that they maximize that time in the summer where construction can be done on the dome, which will, will be a big boost. Um, yeah, for the makes program. sense. Yeah. So, you know, one other thing about Syracuse program as a whole. So, you know, Babers is a guy I'm not going to, you know, he hasn't sustained success yet. Right. You know, he's he's had, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, they're not exactly banging down the door, but the guys that he's been able to kind of pick and develop into like, you know, right. legit threats like Andre Cisco was the 73rd rated strong safety. Yeah. And boom, he's a All-American mm-hmm. in his freshman season. So he's been able to pluck guys and find them and, and develop them into the into the mold that is Syracuse football. But, right. you know, do you think it's sustainable? And I think Syracuse has a very good team this year. We'll right. see, they've got some question marks on offense, I guess, mm-hmm. with the new quarterback and um, things like that. But, you know, do you think it's sustainable? And, you know, if Babers were to leave after the season, you know, what kind of shape would they be in? That's a tricky one. If he leaves after this season, I don't know if he's established long enough uh, roots to that it transitions right away to the next coach as a question would be, does he have someone in his staff that's ready to step in? And that's kind of a question that uh, we're all unsure about, to be honest with you. And that's the fear is, uh, you know, does he leave before there's someone sort of in place? And um, it depends on what people consider success. And that's some of the thing here is you win 10 games. Is Syracuse going to win 10 games for six or seven years in a row? I don't know. But can Syracuse be consistently an eight-win team, and you know, in bowl games, and and I think so, and I think he can do that, and I think it's going to take some some of those years to be able to make more of those recruiting inroads because they're still fighting an uphill battle. I mean, they uh, were recruiting a four-star receiver from Georgia who picked Georgia Tech, and so a lot of people are like, why is a wide receiver picking Georgia Tech over the Dino Babers offense? And you know, and I think there's still some inroads that have to be made in, in terms of. You know, the recruiting area seems to be shifting. There's some uh, Syracuse added some players from North Carolina in the last two classes. Right. You know, they continue to be looking in the Midwest. Um, and, and they're trying to get those guys, like you mentioned, Andre Cisco from Florida, guys that maybe fall outside of the Florida, Florida State, Miami first view that Syracuse can get in early and say, hey, we really want you. You're not a second choice for us. And, you know, be able to hold off those schools as those players develop. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Sure. Logistically, that's got to be extremely difficult to not only establish recruiting bases outside of your regional area, but to sustain them, um, right. especially with coach turnover the way that it is. It, it becomes, uh, you know, making those hires and being selective mm-hmm. on who you're going after on your side that regional you know, stronghold, like uh, an NC State would in the state of North Carolina, Virginia mm-hmm. would in the state of Virginia, where those re- recruiting pools are a little deeper. So Yeah, there's just not the depth in New York State 
and you're still competing with Penn State, Notre Dame, and, and some of these other programs sure. still to get those top line sure. players. So, right, that makes it difficult. But you know, I think in, in speaking to Justin's point, Syracuse has done a great job of identifying talent and, and developing it, and I think that's right. been huge, and that will continue to be huge for them if they do want to grow those roots that you spoke of. Right. Uh, so, you know, the biggest question for Syracuse on offense this year is the quarterback position. So. You know, Eric Dungy, we're an, we're a pro Eric Dungy podcast here. <laughs> yes, Big we fans. are. Uh, I basically became a became a fan of him in 2016 when they knocked off Virginia Tech, and I was like, "Who is this guy?" He's a baller. He, he was. He was just an absolute right. baller, and you know, mm-hmm. maybe not like you know the most talented guy, but athletic and made it work at the position. Right, um, a guy who I think can can make it at the NFL if uh, if he finds the right spot. But, you know, that was obviously a huge loss for Syracuse heading into this season, a season in which their defense is extremely strong. Mm-hmm. But it's not like they don't have anybody there to kind of take over the reins. They've got right. Tommy DeVito, right? Four-star, right. former Elite 11 quarterback. You know, what are you expecting out of him this year? I mean, that the big that's the big question, and, and a, a lot of Syracuse fans share your concern um, because Dungy was just, he was a gamer. And so, you know, he became, a, he's one of those guys that he'll come back 20 years from now and he'll never buy a drink in the city of Syracuse <laughs> or a meal because no he was just tough, you know. Um, but he never really fit what Babers wants to do on offense. You know, a lot of the timing, the throws, um, you know, he tucked and ran a lot. And so I think the Syracuse offense is going to look a little different. And so, you know, the, the uncertainty with DeVito, I think some of it, you know, we, we saw flashes. He came in against Florida State, and we know that they were down last year, but he looked good. He came in against North Carolina in a game that really could have tipped Syracuse's season the wrong way um, because they were coming off losses to Clemson and Pitt, and they're trailing at home against North Carolina. And so the, this, this season was about to go off the rails, and he came in and rallied the team in overtime win. And then against Notre Dame, he looked, he didn't look good. You know, he looked like a freshman playing uh, big time football. So, you know, we've seen glimpses. The The hope is that Syracuse can run the ball more consistently. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, um, especially at the noon site, are worried about how the offensive line fits. Um, we've got a transfer, uh, Ryan Alexander, a tackle from South Alabama, grad transfer that just got to campus this summer. So there's some fluidity on the offensive line right now as they try to establish positions. But if Syracuse can get back to what, you know, Baylor did with being able to run between the tackles out of that spread. And DeVito, you know, seems to have developed a pretty good rapport with the receivers. And, you know, he throws a nice ball and, and he might be a little bit more accurate than Dungy. So it'll be interesting to see how Babers, you know, adjust the offense for his talents where we see more of that sort of short timing routes, um, you know, less quarterback runs. And and what does that mean? Because let's face it, Syracuse last year um, actually played a lot of Beamer ball. Um, They weren't very efficient on offense. They used great special teams um, and opportunistic defense, and they um, they didn't do well in the red zone. Um, They weren't very efficient on offense. And so that's going to be a question because a lot of times down near the goal line, it was, you know, Dungy was going to, you know, QB read, and he was going to keep the ball, and he was going to run over whoever he had to to get to that end zone. And and so DeVito's a different type of guy. He might be a little bit faster, but he, you don't want him playing that style. So um, yeah. it's it, that first game is going to be very curious for a lot of fans because I think we're all kind of like there's a lot of excitement here and, and a lot of hype going around about the team, but there there's still that that feeling from a great portion of the fan base of you know is DeVito ready to take over and help replace what 
you know, was lost with Dungey, which was a lot statistically. Yeah. yeah, and if if he's able to, if DeVito is able to go a step above uh, what you were able to get uh, with Dungey and, and really provide uh, Dino what he's looking for in his Art Browse-esque system, you know, right. spreading out the field, a lot of empty sets, uh, quick releases, double slants, hitches, that's a nightmare for a right. defense when it's pulled off correctly. And it's absolutely exhausting. And the way that the Syracuse especially uses the entire width of the football field uh, gives me nightmares. I know when Virginia Tech plays them. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about a guy that could actually fit what Dino wants to do to a, a further extent, um, that's a daunting proposition with that defense if they're able to pull it off. Right. Well, you know, Syracuse certainly has the receivers ready to go for the type of offense he wants to run because, you know, two of their best receivers in Sean Riley and uh, Nakeem Johnson don't stand mm-hmm. taller than five foot eight. Right. And they're really kind of like dyna- dynamic playmakers, you know, fit well in the slot. You know, they do have a guy in Tosh Harris who, again, right. one of those like, not as highly touted recruits, but came in, set some freshman records for Syracuse last year. And then, you know, my favorite player on their offense has to be the uh, tight end slash fullback and Chris Selmore who yeah. is a six foot, 300 pounder. Right. Uh, just love seeing him on the field. So, you know, what, what do you, what do you think from, from this receiving core, you know, they've got, I don't know if size is going to be an issue because it's college. You can kind of mm-hmm. get away with that type of thing, but right. You know, outside of the three guys I mentioned, plus Chris Elmore, there's a little bit of an experience issue, possibly. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the Syracuse lost Jamal Custis. And so um, Custis followed Steve Ishmael, who followed Amba Edatawu, has taller receivers on the outside. And you talked about using the whole width of the field. And they pretty much ran fly routes and looking against single coverage where they could go up and make plays over smaller DBs. And so this year, Taj Harris will be on one side. And on the other side, we might see a Michigan State transfer, Tristan Jackson, who actually played in the bowl game against West Virginia. He's one of two transfers that Syracuse is looking to integrate into the offense this year. The other is Abdul Adams, a running back who came from Oklahoma. And so both guys scored in the the, the bowl game win, uh, took advantage of that new NCAA rule where because they had sat the regular season, they were eligible for the bowl game and, and scored touchdowns. And Adams had two on the ground and Jackson caught one in the air. And so Jackson and DeVito have uh, developed a strong rapport last year through practice, you know, with that second unit. And so we're kind of excited to see what what Jackson might be able to do on the outside and kind of stepping into that role. So what about from the uh, from the running back position? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like Mo Neal's the guy, you know, yeah. guys average over five carries, but not necessarily super dynamic, I guess, you know, more of kind of a, uh, a pounder. Um, but they've got guys like Jawar Jordan, who's supposed to be, mm-hmm you know, lightning fast and right. Abdul Adams coming in from Oklahoma. What do you, what do you think about the running back spot? I think it's going to be a lot by committee. I think we talked about the tempo of the Babers offense and and he likes to run the ball, especially out of those sets, you know, spread you wide and, and force the defense to decide, are they going to split the safeties out wide and help defend against those, those fly routes down the sidelines, or are they going to play close to the box? And, you know, they want to get you where they can run and have guys miss. And Mo Neal will probably be the starter senior, um, good receiver, good all around. Uh, you know, it's interesting in the Babers offense, the running back actually calls protection in a lot of those sets. So, you know, Neil's been uh, got the most experience, so he'll probably handle the bulk of that. And then Adams. And, you don't uh, see a really good yeah. pass blocking running back in college football anymore. Not yeah, anymore. It's, it's different, right? Because they're usually guys that are smaller and quicker. Um, and, and that's kind of the focus. And so, yeah, Babers um, with the 
one running back we lost, Dante Strickland, played a lot, and a lot of it was because he was helping with you know to handle the protections, and so that's important for the Babers mm-hmm. offense, and some of that helps with the tempo because I think what's happening is the quarterbacks being able to, able to look at the safeties and linebackers as their keys, whereas the running back can look at position and alignment, and so. With Moniel, you've got Ab- Abdul Adams, um, uh, sophomore Jarvion Howard, who was another sort of kind of in between the tackles running back. Um, and then you mentioned Joar Jordan, who uh, they've talked about for his ability to get on the outside and make plays. So I think, you know, Babers likes to mix it up. You know, he, he wants to push the tempo. So he wants, you know, they want to be able to run a lot of plays and move quickly and to really kind of wear down opponents. And so I think that's that's really for all the talk about his offense and, and the passing number is ultimately what he'd love to do is just take control of the game. And, and if he could run it 18 plays and run it down your throat and take five minutes off the clock in the yeah. fourth quarter, you know, I think, you know, that, that that's a demoralizing, you know, yeah. impact on a defense when you just can't get off the field. And so, you know, expect Syracuse to use a lot of different guys and, and without Dungey running the ball, I think those running backs are really going to have to step up and, and be able to, to you know, make those plays and, and to get to that second level. Sure. So that starts with the offensive line too, right? right. And this yeah. is an offensive line that's replacing two tackles. You know, they've got a lot of freshmen who are big freshmen. Yeah. Uh, so you got to be excited about the size there. A couple of grad transfers coming in, but you know, is that that to me is probably maybe the most unknown group outside of quarterback i mean we'll give we'll give devito a benefit of the doubt but you know as a unit the the offensive line might be a little bit of a concern this year yeah i think on that side of the ball that's the one that we're all kind of watching for because you mentioned losing the tackles and aaron surveys who was the center last year um has started off on tackle out and tackle with the start of uh practice and so sam heckle who was hurt last year is uh, right now working as the starting center and so I think the plan would be to to be able to work with that, but they've got to stay healthy. And if surveys has to go back inside, then you could be talking about um, young players, um, you know, getting on the outside. There's a talk of a true freshman, Anthony Red, possibly being at tackle or a sophomore, uh, Carlos Federello, who is a little bit smaller, who the coaching staff really like. Um, but he's been working at some center, too. So I think that's the that's the piece that's got to come together because uh you know, the, the line's going to be important, especially, um, you know, with Dungy, a lot of the, the plays, he was able to sort of freelance, you know, and he, he made uh, stuff happen on the run and out of the pocket and with his ability to run the ball and throw. And, and DeVito seems to be more comfortable as a timing guy. Um, and so I think you want to be able for him to catch the snap and do his three steps and throw and, and not have to be moving around a lot. So that's that's the worry. I don't know if we can say worry, but that's the spot that we're really looking at as, as the season gets rolling here. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a fast paced offense, um, a little bit different than what we're used to seeing. So I think maybe the Liberty game and the Maryland game will be decent, a decent kind of mm-hmm. introduction into the season, even though right. it's two games on the road. It's not necessarily going to be uh, easy, but at least it'll let guys go up against maybe some of the the weaker teams on the schedule that they're going to face this year. Right. Yeah, they're, I think they're important for, um, you know, you talked about how the Syracuse keep this going. And, you know, they start off preseason, a lot of top 25 polls, and you got you to gotta win those first two weeks. Um, you know, you really can't afford to slip up or else people will start saying eh, that there was a fluke, you know, and they're back, yeah. to, back to where they were before, so. So 
it's probably a coin flip between the defensive line and the secondary as far as strongest positional group on right. on the team. But this defensive line, they might have the best tandem defensive ends in the ACC, right. maybe even arguably college football, to be honest. And I, I, I saw a, uh, I can't remember what it was. You know, it's it's like the season of of top whatever lists, you mm-hmm. know, out there on Twitter right now. And the Syracuse defense was was off of the top 25 or something like that. Right. Uh, which I was kind of surprised because I think this group is flying under the radar a little bit. And it all mm-hmm. starts up front. And Kendall Coleman, Alton right. Robinson, you know, two guys combined yeah. for 20 sacks and 29 tackles for a loss last season. Right. You know, do you think they pick up where they left off? And is there uh, anybody on this defensive line unit that's really going to maybe step up and surprise us this year? So I think uh, it would be some of the interior. So Syracuse lost Chris Layton, who uh, got drafted by the Giants, and who kind of controlled the line in the middle, um, you know, helped free up those guys on the outside to to be able to to rush the passer and set the edge. And so Josh Black is a guy who's going to be, a, I think he started off as a DN, he's going to slide inside and see a lot more action. Um, you could possibly see Chris Elmore on that side of the ball, um, potentially. Love it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so I think that's the kind of question is, can the defensive, the interior defensive guys create enough havoc inside so that where teams can't focus on Robinson and Coleman? And then behind that, are the linebackers going to be able to make plays against the running game? So Syracuse created a lot of turnovers defensively last year, but they gave up a lot of big plays. And I think that's why um, in some of those rankings, they're sort of hurt because the metrics didn't look great. And so with a, a deeper and more experienced secondary and those two guys on defensive end, you know, if the, the middle of the field sort of on defense can hold up their end, uh, you know, you could be looking at something special on that side of the ball. Yeah, I think that's the question mark, right, is those linebackers, because there's not really any proven guy coming back in that group and a bunch of Juco players. So, you know, how how concerned are you about that that positional group? I mean, it, it was a position of concern last year and Ryan Guthrie and Keelan Whitner, who was a converted safety, really came on, especially at the end of the year. And Guthrie had a, a really strong season. They made a lot of plays. And so. Andrew Armstrong is the most experienced guy, and he was more of a cover, so he played a lot of passing downs, and now he's going to be counted on to play uh, a bigger role this year. Uh, there's a couple of freshmen, Michael Jones and Lee Pogba, um, who are highly touted, who came in in the spring, um, who are pushing to get in the de- up the depth chart. And uh, we have an interesting player, Tyrell Richards, who's a Canadian player, and, and Syracuse is started to make some inroads in football and in, in pulling players from north of the border here. They've got an offensive lineman too, right? Yeah, a couple of offensive linemen now um, and uh, picking up a couple of players for next year. And so Richards came on as a he's a linebacker, but he ended up playing as a, a backup defensive end last year and came on at the end of the year. And so he could he could be used in those rush situations. Um, you know, there's a possibility that you could see Robinson and, and Coleman on passing down slide inside. Uh, getting back to sort of what the the New York Giants did in the past when they would slide Strahan and tuck around and and really just have four pass rushers on those true passing downs and really get after the quarterback there. So a lot of people are watching to see how Richards emerges. Um, you know, if it, could he fill a linebacker slash DN role? Yeah. So you know, I think jumping to your secondary, mm-hmm. you know, you've got Andre Cisco, right? Who, all ACC first team 
led the country or at least tied for the nation lead in interceptions, had 18 right. pass deflections. You know, are we expecting a repeat of that this year? I said he was an All-American. I assumed right. he was. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, outside of Cisco, too, we've got Evan Foster, who uh, is expected to start at safety again as well. So, I mean, maybe just talk about this secondary and, you know, is is anybody going to be able to rush the football against Syracuse? Is anybody going to be able to throw? Like, how are they going to? How are they an, an offense going to have actual success? So I think teams are going to try and attack Syracuse with the run, um, you know, to minimize those defensive ends and to avoid the secondary. So Cisco last year had the interceptions, but I think that the staff felt that there were a lot of plays he left out on the field. And, you know, we went, we talked about Babers and his personality at the ACC media day. He talked about Cisco and he said he went down the Walmart and picked up some buys and tries and, and, and uh, you know, they, they showed them p- pictures from the first day of practice and he's absolutely like shredded you know and I don't know how much he put on in terms of muscle from freshman to sophomore year but now they're looking for him to be able to make tackles take the right angles and so maybe the interceptions go down but he's a better overall player and you know they're reducing the amount of big plays sure and and that's key right because you got to reduce the amount of big plays but what Syracuse was able to do last year I think they were top 10 in turnover margin was turn the ball over um with the way that offenses are going in college football, that big play stat, it seems like every team nowadays is struggling with giving up big plays, but what teams aren't doing is getting turnovers in the way that Syracuse did. So that's going to be absolutely key for that defense. But, um, you know, obviously with the way things are, I don't see that number dropping too much. Um, you know, they may not be top 10 again in turnover right. margin. Um, and that all, that all is dependent on how well they protect the football at the same time, mm-hmm. right. but definitely expect that defense to, to ball hawk again this year. Yeah, and I think the interesting piece is you talked about the safeties, but on the outside we've got Chris Frederick, who's an experienced corner. Uh, on the other side, probably uh, Trill Williams will be another guy, and then Nickel. So there's some talent, and uh, I'll I won't pronounce his name, but Femi Melawatu. He's got an older brother who's uh, playing for the Patriots, and uh, I apologize to him because I completely <laughs> butchered that name. But these are younger guys that are really look to be um, ready to step in, and, and it adds some depth. And that's yeah. something that Syracuse uh, doesn't have at every position, but the secondary looks like it has some depth. And and when you talk about where modern offenses are going, you've got to be able to play five and six DBs consistently. And and so I think that's where the, the, the team speed that Babers has talked about. And that unit, um, for as good as the defensive linemen are, if the if that secondary can 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 control those big plays and and you know get teams off the field on third and long that's gonna that's gonna really go a long way for Syracuse being able to to match last year's success yeah and I I think too uh just looking at some of the athletes that that Syracuse has on this football team so you got Chris Jones in the secondary guy who is running a sub four three forty you know I think two out of the three interior defensive linemen can do backflips Uh, which is uh, not typically common among defensive linemen, especially defensive tackles. Right. Um, But, you know, you you kind of alluded to it earlier, talking about Beamer ball. And I think if there's any team doing Beamer ball the best in the ACC right now, it's probably Syracuse. And, you know, outside of the uh, outside of the kicking game, which Mm -hmm. is extremely strong, um, you know, this is a team that, you know, has a lot of success at either, you know, blocking punter, controlling right. the uh, the possession of where it's going. So maybe just kind of talk about the special teams a little bit and, you know, why Syracuse is now kind of the class of the ACC when it comes to special teams. Yeah, I mean, I think they they caught a huge break with Andre Schmidt, the place kicker, 
um, who was sort of a, an afterthought, and, and they were able to bring him to campus. And, and he was he, kind of like a preferred walk-on, right? Right, basically, yeah. And then he was a Groza Award winner. Yeah. And, and so, and then on the other side of the ball, Sterling Hoffrichter, who's heading into his last year as an All ACC punter, and his ability to change the field with the hang time. And with the athletes, you, you get better coverage. And, and that's sort of a throwback to those successful Pasqualoni days where a lot of the guys you saw on special teams were, were the top athletes. And so Syracuse is able to control field position, uh, flip the field. And so the ability to do that and, and cover kicks and punts has been, uh, was a huge boon last year. And so I you know, expect with Hoff Richter back, um, Babers thinks he's an NFL punter. Um, it's rare that those guys get drafted these days, but he's, he's that good and that consistent. Um, and when you're indoors for six or seven games too, um, you should put a priority on the kicking game and you should be able to get people that want to kick in, in those sort of ideal conditions. And it looks like Syracuse is, is putting that focus to, to good work. So, you know, we've hit on it kind of throughout and some of the big names we brought up. Andre Sisco, you know, like we mentioned earlier, 73rd ranked safety in the country, right. you know, All-American. Taj Harris, 124th rated receiver, breaks mm -hmm. a bunch of freshman records at Syracuse. Right. Alton Robinson, 20th best defensive end of the country out of JUCO. Right. Okay. Lou Groza, award winner, is a preferred walk-on. So... There's other guys, too, that are coming up the pipeline that aren't established yet, but the coaching staff is very high on. Mm -hmm. Is this just a finding diamond in the rough situation, or or the, is the coaching staff that good at Syracuse? I mean, I think they have a type. And I think, it, you know, to, to relate it to Jim Beheim is that Syracuse basketball has done well with recruits that aren't what people consider the top flight. And because they fit the system. And so I think that Dino Babers has a type, you know, and it, it's looking for athletes. It's looking for speed. It's looking for things that they can kind of work with within their system. And so, you know, a guy like Sean Riley, um, I, I think he's listed at 5'10 or 5'11. I mean, that's probably very generous. Um, but when you watch him play, I mean, he's in space. He operates so well. And he's just that fit for Syracuse. And, and, and they also train differently. And, and so I think one of the things that Babers did was really upgrade the, the strength and conditioning and, and push the administration to hire more people. And they train for that sort of the, the style of play that they want. So um, from the lifting and the running that they do, it's not the you know traditional sort of football training. And so I think that's why you've seen those guys that have been able to put up those 40 times. And you talk about the defensive lineman, Josh Black, who I mentioned before, was on Bruce Feldman's 50 freaks in college football. And so they're, they're doing a lot of things that are really about that explosive movement and conditioning. And so they're taking players and over the you know four and five years, they're, they're really developing them into to really solid athletes and and plugging them into places where they can be successful which is i think the, a, probably a good testament to the coaching and the staff yeah so i mean what do you think this year from a from a record standpoint because now you won 10 games mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of uh maybe a pressure to do that again um, not like an extremely difficult schedule, but not like super easy as well. Right. And some of your toughest games are in conference. So you got Clemson, obviously, but you're hosting them and mm -hmm. you've 
seem to give Clemson problems over the years. Uh, at NC State could be tricky at Florida State, and then Wake Forest I think is another team that has a chance to be really good this year. Yeah. So, what, what do you think is a realistic shot or a reasonable uh, barometer as far as a win loss mark for the for the Orange? I mean, I think personally, you, you could see eight wins and still have a successful season. Um, you know, I think that 10 is tough. As you mentioned, uh, on paper right now, it doesn't look like a, a, a difficult schedule, but a lot of those hot, sort of toss-up games are on the road. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people here obviously focus, focusing on the Clemson game, and, and there's a lot of excitement around that. Um, and we've matched up pretty well against them, but I, I think they're on another level talent-wise. And so um, I think those first two games are crucial. Um, if you want to get back there, I think, you know, being 2-0, and playing Clemson, and then after Clemson's Holy Cross, and then you get into the ACC schedule more with, you know, we still have Pitt and Boston College, and, um, you know, we lost to Pitt last year and beat BC. Um, but A.J. Dillon was banged up when we played him. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that are Syracuse, sort of avoided the major injury bug last year, um, especially with the ability to keep Dungy pretty healthy throughout the season. And, you know, that this team has some positions where they probably can't afford a, a, an injury or a key injury for multiple games. And, you know, DeVito is one of those guys behind him at quarterback is a, a really untested and unproven um, Juco transfer Clayton Welch, um, who, they players rave about in practice, but that's, you know, entirely different than games. So, you know, I think a lot of things broke well for Syracuse last year um, after the pit game. And and so even if they they step back record wise, I think if they can hit another eight win season in a solid bowl, that's a good year. Now, obviously, with Clemson being so successful, there's an opportunity for a strong second place ACC team if Clemson is undefeated to get in the playoff to get that orange bowl bid that wasn't available last year so i think you know if you're asking for like uh you know a best scenario sort of thing that we'd be looking at that would be you know for syracuse if they can somehow get that 10 wins and 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 find themselves in position to get that orange bowl and that new year six bowl that would be it that would be a huge huge push for recruiting and and establishing a sort of that foundation that we're looking for yeah, I think it's a realistic shot. I think if you got to 10 wins and, you know, that second loss wasn't to, like, Holy Cross, right. uh, you know, you've got a pretty good shot at that, you know, a, what's it called now? It's not a BCS Bowl, but one of those, you know, yeah. higher New tier York, Bowls. New Year yeah, six. Year 6. New Year yeah. 6, yeah, whatever. Okay, so <laughs> um, before we get into Virginia Tech-Syracuse, you know, right. who would you say is Syracuse's biggest rival in the ACC right now? Um, I think a lot of people want to say Clemson, Clemson. but I, <laughs> Clemson. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Pitt and BC have been traditionally, I think, um, I think we're probably one more, if we had beaten Clemson last year, it would be a rival. If you beat them this year, then I think you'd become a rival because then now, now you're a game that they're going to be circling on the, the schedule. And I think that's what it takes. I think, um, you know, so it's tricky because it, you know, traditionally it's Pitt, Pitt BC, um, but the way the conference is structured, a, a, another successful season, and then you could be, you know, uh, sort of toe to toe with Clemson. Yeah, yeah, the BC thing makes a lot of sense, and I, I think Syracuse and BC are two programs that are very similar. Um, and BC is probably looking at Syracuse right now with envy because they just haven't been able to put it together since you know the uh, 
the late 2000s, basically, mm-hmm. with the Matt Ryan era. So, That's right. Um, so let's let's go back in time a little bit. Yeah. So, <laughs> Syracuse, Virginia Tech, former Big East foes. Right. Uh, for for anybody listening, that's not a uh, you know that was just focused on the ACC their entire life, but. Uh, Syracuse actually holds a 10-8 advantage, and until 2016, they hadn't met since uh, Virginia Tech left the right. uh, the Big East for the ACC. But uh, they met a lot during the 90s and early 2000s. We had the McNabb era for Syracuse and the Michael Vick era. Um, but, you know, there were some games that kind of really stood out, and I think right. the the first big one that kind of came to mind was the uh, the game in 1996 where basically if Virginia Tech wins that game, they're probably in the national championship that year. Right. Or at least right right there, Mm -hmm. because that was their only regular season loss. Right. And it was a game where they came in on a 13-game winning streak, and they go up to Syracuse and get absolutely destroyed. Right. 52-21. You know, McNabb had 163 yards on the ground. Syracuse rushed for 338 yards. That was Bud Foster's first year as defensive coordinator. You know, is that a game that kind of sticks out in your mind? And that was kind of the start of Syracuse kind of – Syracuse was always the underdog in these games. Right. And they, they always played up, and I don't know if they caught the Hokies napping, but they caught them. Yeah, it was one of those series where it seemed like the home team really dominated. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that was one of those games that, that – you know, Syracuse just with uh, McNabb was just a really special player. And, you know, Syracuse had a lot of talent on defense as well. Um, I don't remember specifically, but guys like Donovan Darius and Keith Bullock um, were on those teams. And so there was a lot of NFL talent on both sides of the ball. And so I think a lot of that's overshadowed because those Syracuse teams always seem to stumble, especially early in the year. They just, the McNabb era, they never really one is probably as much as they should have. Um, and a lot of that was just September games where they just did not, you know, get the job done. And by the time they rallied at the end of the year, they were they were further back than they should have been. Yeah. And it's funny you should mention that. Ten-year-old uh, Tim remembers a, a time in either late August or early September when his uh, favorite team, the NC State Wolfpack, went to the Carrier Dome and yeah. beat a Donovan McNabb team on a two-point conversion uh, to Torrey Holt. Yeah, that was one of Tim's favorite memories, and yeah. I'm speaking in the third person for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, one, a painful memory for Syracuse fans because uh, that was one of those early season losses that yeah. just that plague sort of the. When we look back now, and you're like, "Wow, how did they lose four games with Donovan McNabb and all these guys right. around him?" But that was just how it worked. Right, and that was, um, you know, the the late, I guess the mid '90s weren't the greatest time uh, for NC State fans either. From a, you know. a a talent standpoint and a results right. standpoint. So that was one of the biggest wins for NC State in the 90s. And I remember that like it was yesterday. Great game. So uh, another game similar to what Tim mentioned, but against the Hokies this time was uh, 1998. Right. The catch. Yeah. Uh, kind of reminded me a lot of the uh, Boston College game in 2007, mm-hmm. um, except this one was as time was expiring. A very uh, iconic moment, at least during the McNabb era. Right. Uh, I don't know if it was the greatest moment in Syracuse history. It is a school with a national championship, albeit quite a while ago. But mm-hmm. um, Hokies, again, highly favored in this game, ranked 16th, 7-1 and one coming in, and they end up with the uh, unthinkable 
lob pass to end the game. Right. So that's the the tight end throwback play, which was a staple of the George DeLeon red zone offense and uh, fourth and 13. And McNabb was just able to get the ball up to Stephen Brominski and it, probably second to the uh, 87 game where Syracuse scored a two point conversion to beat West Virginia, who was their big rival at that time to keep stay undefeated in the regular season, but probably the second greatest ending. Um, especially in, in the Carrier Dome's history in terms of football. Um, probably one of the, mo- the biggest moments, obviously, of McNabb's career at Syracuse. And, and you know, one of the biggest moments in that rivalry in that time period was just, you know, a, a game that looked like Syracuse was lost. Um, you know, they kind of botched the third down play before that play. They're scrambling, end of the game. And, you know, for McNabb to throw it up and Brominski to, to, to haul it in was just uh, – and get, the, get a big win over a ranked team was, you know – huge for that yeah it was it was pretty incredible going back and watching the end of that game just to see the amount of fourth down conversions that McNabb pulled off and it reminded me of when uh the Eagles were playing the Packers in the playoffs and he converted a fourth and 29 for a first down and they ended up winning the game and uh to say that I was unhappy um so uh, another game that really stands out, there's two more that I have on here. We've got yeah. the Michael Vick, Dwight Freeney game. So yeah. that's a game in which Vick got sacked eight times, right. was held very much in check, you know, only had 75 yards rushing, 74 yards passing. Freeney had four and a half sacks, and there was only a one point lead for the Hokies until Vick finally pulled off a 55 yard run yeah. for the touchdown to kind of seal the game. But right. You know, that was the season where Virginia Tech's coming off a national championship appearance, but they could do nothing on offense in that one. I mean, from a standpoint of, of my Syracuse football watching career, Dwight Freeney was the most dominant Syracuse football player we've had. I mean, that team, well, we talked about Troy Noons earlier. Troy Noons and R.J. Anderson were their quarterbacks after McNabb. Really didn't do much offensively. Um, there was some talent around Freeney, but he was just so destructive of a force on oh that gosh. defensive line. Um, four and a half sacks. He he left the game. He got hurt that game, so he wasn't in towards the end. I mean, and he was rushing in Vic's face. And I mean, I, Michael Vic was such an amazing football player. And to think about him being sacked eight times in a game, and for one guy to get him four and a half times, I mean, uh, we talked about freaks and athletic freaks, and Dwight Freeney yep. is probably the the one of the bigger athletic freaks in Syracuse football history, and, and that probably that game uh, got him rocketing up NFL draft boards, um, <laughs> you know, because I think anybody would notice how hard it is to take down Vic that often, and for him to be able to just to dominate a game like that was amazing, and then. You know that the Syracuse was just kind of all about what could they could they do enough on offense to to allow the defense and special teams to kind of take over and and then when Vic broke that one at the end and just showed you how you know talented he was he just you know he steps out of the pocket there's a little seam he cuts to his left and he's down yeah. the sideline and untouched Untouch. and you're just like you know all game you batter the guy you, you hem him in and it just that one little opening that he took and made that play it was. Um, that was a tough loss for Syracuse fans because that was a game that people were really, really excited about. You know, what's interesting is uh, Dwight Freeney was interviewed not long ago and said that that was the uh, the game in his career, NFL included, that he was the most locked in for was yeah. that game. 
I don't know who was playing tackle that day, but you had to feel for that guy because he had no chance. It was like Freeney yeah. knew the snap count, and it was unreal. So uh, the 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 last one that really stands out, and this is one of the last times uh, the two played before right. 2016, was, of course, the 2002 matchup, the triple overtime thriller. Number eight, once again, Virginia Tech goes into Syracuse. Syracuse was... Two and six, maybe. Yes, very bad. Awful, <laughs> awful. And <laughs> the two teams combined for eleven hundred plus yards. Brian Randall for the Hokies, who I think is one of the best Virginia Tech quarterbacks in team history. Right. Five touchdown passes. Ernest Wilford had uh, almost three hundred yards receiving, four touchdowns. Uh, Troy Noons, your boy, 400 yeah. yards passing. Um, yeah. I mean, this was a game where, you know, it wasn't just the Hokies' loss. It cost them the Big East title. It cost them a BCS appearance. And, I mean, they ended up losing to Syracuse, I think, the following week. Or not uh, Syracuse, but Pitt. Right. Um, but, I mean, this was just one of those seasons to where Virginia Tech started off so promising and then all of a sudden you've got this triple overtime, just unthinkable loss to Syracuse, and then mm-hmm. boom, you can't write the ship the following week. Your season right. is just completely wrecked. Not to dwell on Virginia Tech misery too much, but this was uh, this was one that I remember and still feel. Yeah, you know, and that was a bright spot in a dark time for Syracuse football, and and that was a game where David Tyree was actually the top receiver for Syracuse, and yeah. the guy who was pretty Simple much hero. noticed as a special teamer, you know, and, and you he, know, had a he blocked a game. punt three years in a row against right. Virginia Tech. Yeah, he was a he was an amazing special teams guy. Wasn't much of an offensive player, and then in that game, it just uh, I don't know something clicked with him and Noons, and and I actually I had that year I had season tickets in the end zone. I was out of town and gave them to a friend, and that's where Virginia that was away from the band so that's the end zone where they went to in all overtime so my friend thanked me for giving him the tickets that day because that was a fun (laughs) one to be in the dome for (laughs) yeah that was that was the game of the year right there so um yeah you know one of the things that I liked most about this little exercise was just going back and looking at some of the box scores and just seeing some of the names that were popping up mm-hmm. like to Bucky Jones and yeah. Walter Reyes and Damian Rhodes and Kevin yeah. Jones and David Tyree and Brian Randall, Ernest Wilford, Corey Moore. I mean, these two teams were loaded with right. guys that made, had successful careers in the NFL. So, um, and Donovan McNabb, obviously, but you know, just kind of, uh, what stood out to me was, Syracuse had almost as many as Virginia Tech, but you know they ha- they were kind of up and down in the '90s. They never consistently right. kind of mm-hmm. put it together. Sure, yeah, and I think that's the uh, that that's a question a lot of Syracuse fans ask when we look back, because uh, you know in recent years we haven't had that much NFL talent as we've had uh, had in that time period, and um, you know that's the interesting piece is can they be successful without having those guys or as they get more successful, will those guys get noticed a little bit more? So, sure. um, but it, it is interesting to look back, and it was quite the rivalry in that time in the Big East. So, so uh, something we like to do with all of our guests to to wrap it up is a little okay. rapid fire. All right. So I know you've probably been uh, just dying to answer this question. I know you know it's coming. Thoughts on the name Chowder and Grits for an ACC podcast. 
Hey, well, you know, coming from a place that's Troy Nunes is an absolute magician, I don't know that we're in any position to judge. (laughs) (laughs) So, but hey, it's memorable, you know, when you see it pop up, it it certainly stands out. So, um, which is good. You know, you want to be unique. Uh, So any, uh, is Syracuse known for chowder? No. Not at all. I didn't. I didn't think so. I mean, Salt what? A, I mean, I'm assuming not grits either, though, right? Hot dogs. Salt potatoes and Hoffman. Salt potatoes. Yes. Okay. Hoffman hot dogs and salt potatoes. That's what I thought. Okay. I so was if... I was up in uh, the Buffalo area, and there was some kind of uh, special beef that everybody was talking about. You I found Wick. Yes. You found Wick. That's a Buffalo yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it that was it was went... solid. It wasn't you know, yeah. you know, the best thing I ever had, but it was good. Syracuse were salt potatoes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, most memorable game in Syracuse history? Oh, man. Um, I think it's probably that 87 West Virginia game. Uh, and just be for timing, obviously, the national championship was 59. And so I, you're not going to have pulled many people who remember specific games there. But 87 was uh, to beat be at home playing their rival, um, score a late touchdown to get within one and have the coach, you know, Dick McPherson and his players all go for two. And, uh, you know, Don McPherson, who should have won the Heisman that year over Tim Brown, um, pitches to, to Michael Owens, a brother of Billy Owens, a Syracuse basketball legend. And he goes untouched into the end zone and the dome just erupts. And uh, they go on to play Auburn in the Sugar Bowl and, and Pat Dye chickens out and kicks a field goal late for a tie. Um, but, you know, that was just a, that was just weak. such a yeah, week. And, and so that 87 game, I think that really kind of put Syracuse football sort of back in that national picture and, and helped propel in that, that run in the 90s. So. Um, true or false, Andre Sisco will lead the nation in interceptions. I'll say false because I think, uh, you know, he, he uh, might take a step back in terms of the number, but I think overall he'll probably be a, a better play overall defender this year. True or false, we'll look at Tommy DeVito at the end of the season and say, not only is that a great Syracuse name, but he's a top three ACC quarterback. <laughs> yeah. Top three, I'm going to go true on that. I'm going to go yeah. true. Yeah, I think nice. he, he's behind Trevor Lawrence and uh, Bryce Perkins. Of Virginia has the p- sort of preseason kind of buzz, but I think he sure DeVito, does. I think Devito is going <laughs> to going to have a solid year. So what a great Syracuse name too. I mean, it's a good Tommy show. Justin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tommy Devito. Perfect. Uh, I hope to see Danny at some of the games. <laughs> um, true or false? Syracuse will beat Clemson this season at the Carrier Dome. People are going to hate me for this, but I'm going to say false. Nah. Come on. It's, this was just an easy toss-up for you. I mean, I, mean, I just <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a, I call myself a rational optimist. And, and okay. you know, I think uh, just what they have offensively, um, I think it'll be close. I think Syracuse will cover. I think it's a 20-point spread right now, which I think is crazy. But I just, I just no. think um, that Clemson offense against, you know, what, we're not sure if Syracuse's sort of defensive linebacker could be the difference. And, and so I think it'll be close, but I think Clemson is still just a little bit ahead. Yeah, I think if Clemson, unless they get hit with a rash of injuries this year, I just, you know, it's right. tough to see them losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, over or under, nine regular season wins for Syracuse. Oh, 
can I say push? Because I think nine's probably yeah. where they hit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right, Fair enough. I'll go. I'll go over then. I'll go. Okay. Over. Okay. There you go. Uh, true or false? Syracuse will one day play somewhere other than the Carrier Dome. Ooh. Uh, regular. I think with the upgrades that Syracuse is in the Carrier Dome for uh, a long time yeah. to come for football. Carrier Dome is forever, man. So. Can't Might not be called. That's what I like to hear. That's <laughs> true. Well, by the time they get air conditioned in it, I'm sure the name rights will change, which will sure, make yeah. total sense. Uh, worst carrier dome experience. This doesn't have to be football related. Oh, man. Jeez. I've been through a lot of bad uh, Syracuse uh, carrier dome experiences. Uh, we asked this question on our site, and I said there was a game against Illinois in the G-Rob era where uh, Juice Williams came in. <laughs> With, Juice Williams. Uh, with Mendenhall and they basically it looked like you know one of those high school games where the big school plays like the smaller school and they just sort of run the ball up the middle for the second half to take it easy on them yeah. and yeah. that's what it was like and I was sitting um, behind folks that were friends of Mike Loxley who was the offensive coordinator at that time for Illinois and they were apologizing to me and basically spent the second <laughs> half talking about how nice the campus looked because they oh, felt man. so bad <laughs> And I know people will talk about other games where there's Syracuse loss, like yeah. heartbreaking games. But to me, like when you're sitting at home and you're watching a team like Illinois, who was okay, um, but basically they were just handing the ball off for a half because they knew that that's all they needed to do to win the game, and they didn't want to show anything. That that was really it's to me it's hard. Out. It's hard to believe that Illinois football is ever in that situation. I know, Amen. right? And we were Amen. there. And so, and I mean, hey, I mean. Juice, Juice Williams and uh, Rashard Mendenhall were, was a nice little one-two punch, but yeah. Rashard just didn't seem to make it work in the NFL for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Aurelius Ben. You know? Aurelius Ben, yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Last one that I have, unless Tim wants to throw any on. <laughs> Dino Babers will be the head coach at Syracuse in 2021. 2021, ooh. Um, I'm going to say yes. I think he's uh, in a long haul. I think he's found a place where he can be successful. I think it's a place where he's going to be comfortable. And I also think the the biggest threat to Syracuse was USC. And I think they're going to be Urban Meyer hunting this offseason. So um, I think we're going to have Babers for a few more years here. There you go. Yeah, yeah there's there's only one from me. And that's uh, what, what's your quick top three on hot dog toppings? On hot dog toppings. Well, yeah. I'm a ketchup guy, so I'm going to say ketchup. <laughs> well, we don't do ketchup up okay. in here. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I'm in agreement a, there. No, but... yeah, no one's gonna. No one agrees with that. So, no. but, uh, but there's a few of us up here. So you know, uh, ketchup, and then I'm I'm a New Englander. So there's actually a, a, a hot dog salt. That's a sort of a New England state, like a celery salt that you okay. put in your hot dog. Okay. And then I'll go with relish. Fair enough. I wasn't expecting any three of those, but look, I'll take it. Hey, you know, you know, you, you were close to the mustard chili coleslaw, which is the top three. That's the holy that, trinity of hot dogs. That, that's so. the holy trinity. But right. yeah. well, hot dog is such a that's regional great. thing, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, Justin, you can you can speak to that. I, you know, I went to yeah. Chicago and got a Chicago dog. It was fantastic. But mm-hmm. man, is it loaded? That's a that's right. a hard thing logistically to eat correctly. Right. It is. And it's like what really throws me is not the little capers. But it's hard to eat a pickle on a yeah. hot dog. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a it's a lot in the mouth. You yeah. know, the slices. There's like half a tomato on that thing. You know, 
Yeah, the Chicago. tomato, you got the poppy seeds, you got the capers, you got the some onions, some relish. Yep. The neon green relish, which I think is fantastic. It's truly yeah. a sandwich. Chicago it is. Chicago hot dog yeah. is truly a sandwich. And it, it's, it's a complete meal. It's like a, it's a salad sandwich uh, hybrid. So we'll take it. Well, the, the Italian beef is what you got to go with up here in Chicago as well. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like if I'm going to Portillo's, which is like the fast food yeah. hot dog Italian beef place. I'm, I'm always stray for the Italian beef. So you just said like four things that didn't go together and just <laughs> casually acted like they were meant to be together. But I'll take it. Yeah, like the fast what? Casual what do you, what do you hot mean? Dog Italian beef, beef establishment. I I'm not sure I'd call it fast casual. Maybe it is. Not really. I need to go. I've gotten every time I've gone, and I've not been in Chicago many times. I think twice. But at both times I went, people told me before I went up there that I needed to go to Portillo's. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're going to go to a fast food spot for hot dogs or Italian beef, I'd go there. I'd go to Al's Italian beef. Or if you want to really kind of stray off the uh, beaten path, there's a place in uh, uh, Elmwood Park called Johnny's Italian Beef. There you go. And Johnny's. Is, you walk in, you better know how to order because it's one of those places where you say, Oh my gosh. Wet, <laughs> wet, wet and hot. And like yeah. that, that's the order. It's like, okay, that's four fifty five, And then boom, you it's done. careful. You got to make sure you're at Johnny's. If you're going to be ordering anything wet and hot, man. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know? But that's, I get so much anxiety at those kind of restaurants, you know, where, where they've got some kind of subculture right. in the menu and everybody knows it. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, you stutter and then everything goes off the rails from there. And by the way, like Johnny, you know, means business. He didn't say a word. He just kind of like looked me up and down. It was extremely intimidating. So <laughs> <laughs> you go in there with the plan. You see Johnny, you freak out. Plan the out guy the window. The beef is intimidating as always. Good deal. Well, yeah. Kevin, right. we appreciate having you on, man. It was fantastic. Hey, thanks for having me. Good talking with you guys. Okay, thanks to Kevin with Noon's Magician. I thought that was a great episode, Tim. What did you think? Man, I thought it was great. One, Kevin was a fantastic interview. Uh, obviously very knowledgeable about Syracuse uh, football. But the, the main takeaway for me was really centered around the quarterback. I know it seems to be common, you know, at least a common opinion of the average ACC sports fan nowadays that Syracuse is bound to drop off because Dungey is no longer the quarterback. Um and, you know, I've even fallen into that trap some. As you know, we are basically a, a Dungy fan podcast here. Um, but Dungy, not necessarily the most talented quarterback there ever was, but the guy was just all heart, all grit. Um, gamer. gamer, absolute gamer, gym rat, man. And it's going to be a shame to see him go. But, um, you know, what they have coming in could potentially end up being better than Dungy and, and maybe a better fit for Baber's system um, running his Art Briles light offense there in Syracuse. So, that was my main takeaway was, hey, Syracuse is in a pretty good position next year. Um, kind of made me sort of rethink where I was going to put them before our preview show. Uh, but it was that along with the fact that it feels good to be talking about Syracuse in a positive way in football now. We were kind of reminiscing on the McNabb era, uh, throwing around names like Tabucky Jones. You know, it just, it just feels good to have Syracuse be, uh, they're not all the way back, um, but they're certainly making great progress. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely good to have them back, especially when we need some stronger teams, kind of uh, under-the-radar teams to be yeah. there in the ACC at this Absolutely. moment. Um, you know, I do think the ACC is trending up. There's a lot of very young teams in the conference, and I think next year and the year after, you know, there's going to be some pretty powerful um, 
pretty powerful programs out there, and it's not just going to be Clemson and then everybody else, even though Clemson is still going to remain the class of the ACC. That being said, I, I still am a little concerned long-term for Syracuse. You know, If they can hold on to Babers, I'm not concerned. But if they can't, I don't know how sustainable it is because I think the coaching job that Babers is doing shouldn't be understated. No. You know, they're, they're, they're not pulling in top 25 recruiting classes. But the guys that they are pulling in fit exactly what they're doing. And there's obviously a lot of coaching up, coaching up that goes with it as well. So, you know, you're not going to find an Andre Cisco at the 73rd rated strong safety position in every single recruiting class. No, you, you know, part of it's luck, uh, but part of it is, you know, being able to identify talent maybe in a different way. And if you're Syracuse, that's what you have to do to, to survive. Yeah. And that's what they're doing right now under Babers. So it's... Um, it's definitely be it's definitely good to see Syracuse kind of uh, bounce back to to relevance, um, and I think you know they have a pretty strong shot at nine ten wins this season, um, and that uh, that third game of the season against uh, against Clemson, I've definitely got it circled. That's going to be a fun. Yeah, one. and and to your point, um, it, it's not necessarily if but when I think Babers leaves at this point because the college football world seems to think of him extremely highly. And when you see that with coaches, it's only a matter of time when they're at stops like Syracuse before one of the big dogs comes and hunts him down. To me, he's got Big 12 football written all over him, um, especially with his system. It just seems like it would meld in that conference extremely well, given that's where it originated. Um, you know, But if you're Syracuse, I, and I, I would imagine this is what's happening now, is you're already looking at what's your contingency plan, um, and maybe that contingency plan is in-house. The key for, secure, for Syracuse, if they want to keep the success going long-term, is going to be when you hire your new coach, because this is going to be either this year or next year, I imagine that Babers is leaving Syracuse. The key there is going to be keeping the system that Babers has installed at Syracuse at Syracuse and not having you know, a total rehaul where you get somebody in there running um, you know, a power, you know, power offense, a pro offense, something like Alabama would have run two or three years ago. Um, but somebody that's running the same kind of spread system that Babers does. I think if they do that smartly, they can sustain that success. But that next hire is going to be obviously crucial uh, as far as keeping the momentum going there in in New York. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a great point. I think, um, and I, I don't think Babers is just going to leave for any job and just trying to, you know, briefly go through some of the available jobs that might come on come open in the Big 12. I don't know if there's any job there that's going to pop open anytime soon that's going to be that enticing for him to leave because I think he he's already at a Power 5 conference, but now the next step up with him would be you know, uh, uh I don't want to say an elite level program, but you know, something that's borderline elite level. Um, you know, a Virginia Tech or something like that would be a big step up if a job like that came open or a, you know, an NC State level job. I don't think he's going to get a Texas level job. Maybe he would. I don't know. But, you know, I think it's tough for a guy who was at Eastern Illinois and Bowling Green and Syracuse to go over to California and take a head coaching job there. Like, I'm just thinking of USC, for example. But I don't know. You know, it's uh, he's proven that he can coach. I think that's all that matters. And uh, I'm not sure that knowing the the area or being from an area where your school is located is really that important anymore just because, you know, the world's gotten a lot no, smaller over the no, years. Especially not for a guy like him. Um, you know, that system lends itself well to, to nabbing guys that are maybe not as highly as recruited as others are. So for him, it's a great system to run where he's at. Um, but I, I disagree. I do think that the next job Babers takes will be uh, elite to borderline elite level. 
Um, typically when you hear coaches being talked of so positively by other coaches and the buzz around him is so high um, that when those jobs do come open, he's going to be one of the, uh, I would say, two or three on a short list to go to a place like, you know, like Texas, Texas A&M, um, even, even somewhere out on, on the West Coast in a Pac-12 country. Um, you know, I, I think he is that good, and he runs a system that is so in vogue right now with everyone um, that that system alone will put him high up on the list of, I think, any athletic director looking to fill a vacancy. And, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I could totally be wrong. But, um, you know, he's definitely got a lot of buzz around him. And if he capitalizes with another eight to nine win season, I think that that hype meter will be, you know, way too high. And, and he will be hit with some job offers that he can't logically turn down. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, I, I do think Syracuse will be able to compete with Clemson. They're going to have to play a really good game. And uh, really the key is uh, Tommy DeVito. I think, uh, you know, what what he's going to be able to do and how consistent he is. You know, we're not expecting him to be Trevor Lawrence, but, you know, he's going to have to be a guy that can go and win games for them. I think defensively they're going to be okay, but Clemson's going to score points in you no matter how good your defense is. So that's going to be a fun one. I'm uh, I'm excited for it, but uh, – but yeah, it's a few weeks away, uh, and like I said, we, uh, we're going to talk some ACC next week. We're going to bring you our uh, Chowder and Grits full preview, so be sure to check that out. And then we've got Southern Pigskin. Uh, we're going to drop that on Thursday. Uh, the interview is done, so all you got to do is tune in and listen. It's guaranteed to be there. So, Tim, that's our show for today. Anything else you want to hit on before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. Just you know, appreciate you guys tuning in, and I uh, look forward to bringing you another interview uh, this week, I think you guys will enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you on the flip side. Yep, and remember, click, listen, subscribe. Go ahead and share our podcast. Uh, we've got some Chowder and Grits hats, too, by the way. So uh, here's a little little promo code for you. If you tweet at us, Chowder and Grits is the best ACC podcast on planet Earth, maybe you'll be getting a free Chowder and Grits hat. I'm not sure. <laughs> It's not a whole lot of work there, Dustin. That's a pretty low bar of entry. It doesn't have to be verbatim, but just uh, just tweet us a uh, just tweet us a reply. Let us know how we're doing, and then you can obviously uh, review us on uh, on Apple Podcast or you know any of your uh, favorite podcast streaming streaming networks. So that's our show for today. Join us on Thursday, and we are talking SEC and ACC football. See you guys later.